Let's make our way to Genesis chapter 3. So where we will be is Genesis 3 this morning, and as you make your way that direction, I'll remind you of where we were last week in Genesis chapter 2. What we saw there was uh, Adam and Eve set up by God for success. Not for failure, but God had put them in the garden. And and this garden that He put them in, He called Eden. And the word Eden in Hebrew literally means delightful. And so God had put them in a delightful place, in a position where they could be successful. Adam and Eve side by side. And as they were there, uh, they were in a spot where they were not ashamed to be there with God. They didn't have any reason, no separation between uh, them and God. They were able to walk with Him in the cool of the day. And so they're in this beautiful relationship where they're able to be naked, uh, not clothed because what I believe is they were actually clothed in light. Their spirit would have been on the outside, able to communicate with God in spirit and in truth. And so they were able to cling to God as He holds them up. Now all that leads us to a very ominous beginning to chapter 3 of Genesis. And we'll begin in verse 1 where we read, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And so we're introduced to a new character, what is uh, given to us in our English as the serpent. In the Hebrew, the word is nahash. And this nahash appears throughout the Bible as both a serpent or a snake or even a, a dragon. And so that's exciting. There are dragons in the Bible. There is a nahash listed out here in Scripture. And so whatever the the character was, however Satan appeared before Eve, it did not look like our slithering snake that we have today. And in fact, likely to Eve, he would have appeared as a shining one, as a creature of light, which goes along with what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And what Paul says in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 11 is Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. And so often we have this depiction in our head through our our literature and our culture that Satan would appear and he's got a red suit and a pitchfork and he's, you know, right there in the garden. But what we know is like no one would listen to someone who popped out of the garden and scared them like that. And so many times this is what uh, Satan does. He shows up in our very midst looking like an angel or a creature of light, but notice what he does at the very beginning. He begins to question the Word of God. This is how Satan starts things out. Did God really say? And the the warning here for us is anytime we don't know what God's Word says, we can be easily fooled with the idea of, is that really in the Word of God? Maybe God didn't say that. I'm not quite sure. If I'm not studied up, if I don't know what's in Scripture, if I don't know what God said, it leads to questioning in my own mind. Maybe God did or did not say this. And so it leaves us in an uncertain spot. Now verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And so Eve here in verse 2 begins to dialogue with Satan. And I give that as a warning. If you're in a conversation with Satan, don't begin the back and forth dialogue. The best thing we can possibly do is flee. Uh, Use the words of Jesus, get thee behind me, Satan, in Jesus' name. And yet, here's Eve, she begins to dialogue with the enemy, having a conversation. And as she has this conversation, what she says is she repeats the word of God, but you might notice if you go back to chapter 2, she adds a little bit to it. 
She says, we may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or we may not touch it lest we die. And so she adds something to the Word of God. And what we find is this is the first time legalism is introduced in our Bible. Legalism looks like additional things, rules being put in place. And the reality is about legalism is it often begins with a decent heart about it. I'm going to add something to the Word that keeps me safe, that keeps me out of trouble. I'm going I'm to bring in the guardrails so that I don't find myself outside and falling into sin. The issue here for Eve is notice how she presented it as if it was the Word of God. That's the big issue with traditions that men set up. We begin to prop them up and set them in a position where they're on par, equal to the Word of God. And what Jesus says is you've allowed the traditions of man to make the Word of God of no effect. And so this is the danger zone with legalism and the extra things that we put into the Word of God. It can stand up on its own. And so Eve would have been better off saying, this is what God's Word said, and by the way, I'm not even going to touch it lest I fall into sin. And yet that's not what happens. And anytime we allow legalism to take over in our hearts, the problem is we can't actually maintain it. We can't even keep the top 10 list in Exodus chapter 20 that God gives us, let alone extra things that we add and layer on. And so God's Word is hard enough, and without the Spirit, we have no chance of being able to accomplish it. And so legalism is a danger zone for us. Now, verse 4, And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so Satan begins here in verse 1 by questioning the Word of God. And by the time we get to verses 4 and 5, he's now questioning the very way of God. You see the the progress that the enemy wants to make. Oh, can you really believe and trust his word? Oh, maybe you can't trust his way. And now as he's whispering into Eve's ear, what's he saying? But, oh, don't you know God's keeping this thing from you? He doesn't want you to succeed. God is holding you back from everything you could be, Eve. And so he lays this out there, and the father of lies is now calling God a liar. You can't believe, you can't trust what God actually says. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And so what we find is Satan now running the same plays that, by the way, he runs on us even to this very day. At the football game tonight, each offensive coordinator is going to have hundreds of plays at their disposal. And yet our enemy only has three. In fact, what John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 is this. Here's the three plays that Satan has been running from Genesis 3 all the way until today. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. These are the plays the enemy runs. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. So when we see Eve, we see him running all three of these. As she looks at the fruit, what she say? It's pleasant to the eyes. Boy, that looks good. It's good for food, boy, but it's going to taste good, and it's desirable to make one wise. I'm going to be so smart if I just go down this road. And sin is always pleasurable for a season. If it wasn't pleasurable, none of us would fall prey to it. And so Satan sets us up in this way, running these plays over and over again. 
But here we find that Adam, unlike Eve, who was deceived, he goes into it willingly, knowing what he was doing. So for Eve, this is a sin. And you remember the difference between a sin and a transgression. That a sin is where we, we attempt to hit the mark, and yet we miss. Our, our intention wasn't necessarily to miss, and yet we didn't quite make it there. But a transgression is different. That's where we look at the target, we pull back the bow and arrow, and we go, you know what? Today's not the day. Don't feel like it today, and I just let it rip and completely intentionally miss the mark. And so what we find is Eve fell into sin, but Adam actually uh, transgressed. Now, what we also notice about this is that Adam puts his relationship with Eve, and perhaps even his relationship to not let Eve know something he doesn't know ahead of the Word of God. And this is a danger zone for us every time. If we put things ahead of, even relationships, before God, it's always a danger for us to fall. Now, before you get upset with Adam, we all have that reaction like, thanks a lot, Adam, way to go, way to ruin it for all the rest of us. Remember, Adam's the best we got. He's the varsity team, right? We're all a bunch of JV players. Uh, we don't have the DNA. We don't have the clean bloodstream. Like we, we are all fallen creatures. So if you think you could do better than Adam, uh, best of luck to you. We're all subject to these same things. So we put the best we had out there and he failed. Now verse seven, and then the eyes of both of them were opened and then they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Adam and Eve desired to experience, to know good and evil, to actually have the the knowledge of them so that they were able to usurp the relationship that they would have had with God. See, prior to this uh, sin that they committed, they would have been able to just rely upon God for the answer. It would have been turning to Him. Lord, is this good for me? Is this not good for me? What would you say about this, Father? And He would have given them the answer. And yet, for them, they decided to, to prioritize knowledge and, and being gods themselves with a little g over having to rely upon God and His discernment. What we also find in verse 7, again, the book of beginnings, we see the very first religious system ever created. The word religion means to relink. It's, it's man's desire to relink and connect back to God. We know that we're fallen. We know we don't have it together. And so how can I cover up what I got going on here? And so the work of their hands was to take the leaves from the tree and to sew them together and somehow be able to be in relationship with God, but it was the work of their own hands. And the problem with religion, foundationally, is it always leaves me wondering, did I do enough? Did I, did I sew those things well enough together, did I do enough in order to stand before a holy God? And it makes me feel, frankly, naked. I feel naked and ashamed when I try to do it all myself. And yet what God desires for us is us to actually be clothed in righteousness, to be clothed in light. In fact, a little reference point to that idea, that concept from Psalm 104, verse 12, or verse 2, excuse me. Psalm 104, verse 2, speaking of God, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. God, clothing himself in light, desires to give us light as our clothing. But yet as Adam and Eve sinned, what happened is spiritual death. The the spirit that would have been on the outside died, and now they're left in their flesh all alone, only to the work of their hands to try to sew and piece things together to cover it all up. Now, verse 8, 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve knew that their coverings were inadequate. If they thought that they'd done a good enough job of sewing the fig leaves together, why did they run and hide from the presence of God? They knew that what they created and done themselves wasn't good enough, and so they hid from the presence of God. And this is what sin always does in our life. It always leaves me fleeing from the presence of God. Even as much as I try to clean it up and cover it up myself, it's never good enough. And so we run away from God's presence. I don't want to be near that holiness. It makes me remember who I really am. And so Adam and Eve hide from God. Verse 9, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? So here's the scene. Adam and Eve, because of their sin, because of their own shame, they are hiding from God. But notice what God is doing seeking them. God is seeking and pursuing them. And he doesn't ask them, oh, why did you? Or how could you? How dare you? He says, where are you? Romans 3.11 says, no one seeks after God. He seeks us. God's seeking us, pursuing us. And this is what's happening in the cries of a father. You can hear it there in the garden, crying out, where are you? Continuing in verse 10. And so he said, Adam speaking here, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And then he, God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now this brings up an age-old question. As God is calling out and then asking Adam these questions, did God not know where Adam was? Did he somehow lose the little guy? Like, where'd you go? Where are you at, buddy? The answer is obviously not. God knew exactly where Adam was and what he had done. What he's looking for is not information. God is looking for a confession from Adam. Please understand that. When we confess to God, he's not looking for information out of us. God is not shocked. God is not sitting there in the therapy session on the couch going, you don't say. I cannot believe you did that. Oh, myself. I am so shocked. It'll take you a minute to get that. God is not shocked by what we've done. He's not surprised. But confession is also not this. Confession is repeating back to God what he already knows about us. And here's the piece about confession that might shock some of you. We do not confess so that we can be forgiven. God has already done that. Do you understand? The work of the cross, he said to Telestai when he breathed his last breath. The word means paid in full. The debt is paid. We do not confess so that we can be forgiven by God. He's already done that. We confess so that we can be released from our sin and our shame and our regret and our guilt. A confession means I am now released. It no longer has a hold on me. It no longer has an effect in my life. And so as I repeat these things back to God, I'm not giving Him new information. I'm simply saying, Lord, this is what's going on in my life. Please deliver me from this. And His promise is He will most assuredly do that. And so we confess things to Him to be released from it. Verse 12, we see how man responds. And then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate it. And so look at man's response. The first time we see in human history of passing of the buck, 
of placing blame. What's he say to God? But the woman you gave me, she's the one that did it. He immediately places blame on her. But note with me, it wasn't just placing blame on Eve. What did he say? The woman you gave me. God, you did this. You allowed her to be in my life. He's blaming God now for his problems. And I want to point that out to say, anytime we blame others, what we're really saying is, God, this is your fault. You've allowed this thing, this person in my life. Therefore, it's your fault that I'm in this spot. We begin to place blame. We're really blaming God for allowing these things in our life. It's a dangerous spot to be in. Now, continuing in verse 13, And the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so Eve, following after the pattern that she'd seen Adam do, she says, Well, it wasn't me. It was the serpent, the Naha. She tricked me. It's his fault. And so we see the, the blame game continues. And so verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, You are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the result of sin is always the same. It's enmity. The word means war. It's battle. It's strife. And when we allow sin in, it always begins a war. Usually relationships are the first casualty of that. And so we see the the relationship casualty beginning to happen between God and man, and now between man and woman. And yet, here in verse 15, one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture, it's called by the Bible scholars the proto-evangelicum. It means the first ever time we see the gospel message in Scripture. At the very beginning of Scripture, God taking our mess, our disaster, and He begins to make a way. He gives a way of a promise. And what He says here is, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her. Your Bible should have capital S seed. Now you science majors know that a woman has an egg. She does not have a seed. She needs a seed to be introduced in order for a baby to come And yet what God says is your seed, capital S, speaking not of the natural occurrence, but of something supernatural must be at play. If you advance in Scripture to Isaiah, now remember this is 700 years before Jesus would show up on the scene. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 gives us a clue as to what's going on here. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The promise of God in the flesh, the seed of the woman, supernaturally taking place. Now all this to say, when everything appeared lost, and everything, even for the seed of the woman, it looked like it was as bad as it could possibly be. In fact, if you skip ahead to chapter 53 of Isaiah, verse 3, Speaking of the Messiah, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Sounds like the garden scene. He was despised and we did not esteem him. 
what we're told is the seed of the Nahash will bruise the heel of him who was sent. He will be beaten, he will be battered, he will be bruised. And yet, what's the promise? It's that he will bruise or smash the head of the serpent. And if you advance in Scripture to Colossians chapter 2, here's what the Apostle Paul says, when everything appeared to be lost, when it looked like it was as bad as it could possibly be, verse 14 says this, that having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. That when it looked like it was as bad as it could be, Jesus nailed there to the cross. Here's, here's the hope we have, the seed of the woman nailed to the cross. What Scripture tells us is Jesus was actually crushing the head of the serpent. That the powers and the principalities that were against us and the handwriting of requirements that was against us, it was being smashed for all of eternity as Jesus had a great victory. Satan never saw it coming. He had no idea that the crucifixion would lead to this. If he did, he would never have allowed Jesus to be crucified. He didn't have a choice in the matter because the plan of salvation started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Back to the text at hand. Verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He will rule over you. And then, the, and then to Adam, he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. Verse 19, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and from dust you are, and to the dust you shall return. And here we see now the effect of sin. Sin having far-reaching effects, not just on Adam and on Eve, but in all of nature. All of nature was affected. All the world around them was affected. And we see the struggle of sin. Struggles in marriage, struggles in having children and raising children, even the very ground. That the reality about sin is it always affects others. We can convince ourselves, and I've heard this especially folks who are caught in addiction, saying, uh, I've even said, my sin only affects me. Who else am I hurting? Who am I really affecting? And yet what Paul says in Romans chapter 14 is no one lives to themselves, no one dies to themselves. Sin always has an effect, and it usually has the greatest effect on the people around us. And as we are in this sinful life, this state, the truth about these bodies is once our soul leaves, these bodies begin to decompose almost instantaneously. It's, a, it's amazing. Scientists look at it and they're, they're blown away that as the soul leaves a body, it begins to break down and decompose. It makes us wonder, where is our hope at? Where do we find hope in this story? And yet if you look with me in Matthew chapter 27, here we see Jesus on trial, illegally, being accused wrongfully. And now he is in the hands of the Roman guards. And in verse 29, when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they placed it on his head and a reed in his hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. It's fascinating to me that the very thorns and the thistles that depict 
our failure, our sin, were placed on the head of Jesus. Having our scorn and our shame placed upon his head, he makes a way. Literally taking our curse upon himself so that we could have an opportunity for eternal life. Now continuing in verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now you remember back in chapter 2 as Eve was presented there before Adam. He looked at her and looked upon her form and he said, Whoa, man. Whoa! Right? In fact, the word in Hebrew was Isha, which means out of man. So he did the manly, you know, scratch himself and grunt, Me, Tarzan, you, Jane, you, woman. But then he looks upon her now in the next chapter, and he sees and realizes what Jesus has just said, from, from her seed is going to come life. A chance at redemption. And so as he looks upon her, he calls her Eve, which in the Hebrew means giver of life. From the seed of the woman, there is a hope that comes from the seed, the speaking of the Messiah. Now verse 21 Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So here we find, to the best of their abilities, what did Adam and Eve try to do? But they tried to clothe and cover themselves, but it was not good enough. The work of their hands couldn't do it. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. That's what they deserve. That's what they have coming their way. And so God, wanting them to have an opportunity at life, He has to make a covering. He has to make a way for them. And so what He does is the first sacrifice in Scripture, an animal would have lost its life, innocent blood would have, be, would have been spilled, a life for a life, and they had to be covered with the skin of the animal. A covering, a kofar. In fact, Leviticus chapter 17 explains this for those that are confused by why the animal had to give its life. I know you're excited about Leviticus Many of you very fired up. Yes, Leviticus 17, verse 11 says this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. A life for a life. The blood had to be shed so that they could continue to live. And so what we find is Adam and Eve not able to provide an adequate covering. What does God do but He makes a way? God provided for them where the work of their hands could not provide. All this to say that every religious system that's ever been created or contrived by man always has the same problem. It's, it, the idea is this, that finite man can do its very best to connect to an infinite God. I mean, imagine that, us and all of our audacity trying to come up with a way to reconnect, to relink with an infinite God. But the problem is, we're always left with this idea of it's not enough. I don't know if if I'm there, if I'm not there, I'm not sure. And so there's this strife that happens in every single religion that takes place. This this concern of, did I do enough? And I have to now defend my religion and defend my access that I'm trying to get or gain to God. And we saw this actually on display Friday night. For any of you that came out to listen to Daniel speak as he was sharing the truth, pulling back the veil of Islam and showing now his, his life in Christianity, the life he has, what took place is men here in uh, Islam that were very upset, standing up to defend their faith, to stand up for their 
God, to stand up for their plan to relink and reconnect. And they were angry as they defended God. I got to tell you, if God is dependent upon me to defend him, he's in trouble. That's not a God that I want to serve. If God needs me to stand up for him, then we're all in uh, deep, deep trouble, right? Now, some of you may remember, Peter says we need to be prepared to defend our faith. What Peter says is we need to be prepared with a defense for the hope that is in us. Not to stand up for God, but to stand up for why do you have hope? Why do you have joy when this thing looks like it is void of all that? And so what I witnessed on Friday night was the hope of Christ that was in you that were gathered here and the power of the Holy Spirit that in spite of all the anger and the yelling and the frustration, and for some of you it was scary, and for the others of you it was kind of exciting, you know, all that that went down, um, what I saw was the peaceable fruit of righteousness that washed over this place. And it took a couple hours. By the time it was all done, those men that had made a scene and wanted to stand up for their God, the only thing they had left was apologies profusely, hugging, I love you, will you eat with me? You know, will you come to dinner with me? A way to make amends for what they had done. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. In the history of our little church, I've never been more proud of what I saw because we didn't stand up. We didn't need to fight. The peaceable fruit of righteousness washes over all that because what Christianity actually is is not a religion. It's a relationship. This is why what God did for us. It's not finite man trying to attain to an infinite God. It's the infinite God coming down in the form of a man to redeem finite man. God can do that. God can make a way. And we see it displayed throughout Scripture. From right here in Genesis 3, advancing to Genesis 12 in the story of Abraham, to the Exodus story in Exodus 12, to Psalm 22 with Jesus on the cross, to Isaiah 53 as a suffering servant, all the way to John chapter 1, verse 29, when John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what Jesus came to do for us. He fights for us. Our God stands up for us. Earlier I quoted... Romans chapter 6, verse 23, which says the wages of sin is death. But I didn't finish the verse. What the rest of the verse says, and many of you know it and you've got it underlined. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the gift. What you and I deserve, it's hell and death. And yet by the grace and the gift of God, what he gives to us is an opportunity for eternal life. It's a beautiful promise that we get to enjoy with Jesus. Now, back to verse 23, verse 22, excuse me. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so imagine this scene that here is, is man in our sinful state, that apparently there's the tree of life. If we take the fruit of that tree, we would be able to live forever. Whatever was in that fruit, good stuff on that fruit. But imagine living forever in this sinful state. 
This would be us for all of eternity had God not through his mercy and his grace removed us from that possibility. And so the Lord removes Adam and Eve so that they would avoid this potential disaster of being stuck in a perpetually sinful state with no way for redemption. Verse 24 as we wrap up. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. The way to the tree of life was guarded to protect us from being forever in our sinful state. And yet, the tree of Calvary that Jesus was upon, it leads the way to eternal life. All this pointing to that tree. Now for some of you, you're like, wait a minute, I thought the tree of life was blocked by the angels, by the cherubim, and now we don't have access. I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to turn to John chapter 20. One last place in Scripture. John chapter 20. In another garden, thousands of years later, here's Mary Magdalene. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Here are the two angels showing the way for the tree of life. As the blood of the lamb that takes away the sin of the world is probably still there on the slab, they're able to say, Mary, he's not here, for he's risen. You now have access not to live perpetually in your sin, but access to live eternally in a life that is free from sin. Jesus made the way for us to have that kind of access. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the tremendous work you did upon that tree. Lord, thank you for the tree of life. Thank you, Lord, for the mercy seat that the angels looked upon where your blood, the propitiation is what John would call it, the payment that turns away wrath was poured out for each of us in this room. Lord, we know that the wages of sin is death. And we are so thankful for the gift of God which allows for eternal life in Christ Jesus. Father, help us as we go. Give us confidence to know that you have made a way. You you are our defender. You are our rock. You are our salvation. You stand when we cannot. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.